Hello and welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Disrupt TV is a weekly show where you learn from some of the best technologists, executives, entrepreneurs about leadership, innovation, and industry trends. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them live throughout the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and many other media publications. My humble opinion, one of the best follows on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. And uh, I'm joined here with my awesome co-host. He's the not only one of the top CIO influencers in the world, but also the top CMO influencer in the world, which is a double feat, uh, but also an author himself, uh, big poster and blogger, and most importantly, one of the top followers on Twitter. So um, we are here taking a special moment this week um, and joined by someone that's joined by a whole crew talking about the issue of health, healthcare, and health tech. And uh, Vala, who do we have today? Who do we start with? It's our uh, privilege to have Michelle Perry, CEO of Relatian, as our, our first guest. Uh, Michelle's been the CEO uh, since 2017, and she has more than 25 years of experience in software and health technology. Relatian is uh, passionate about assisting healthcare organizations with patient-centered engagement. Michelle has a proven track record for scaling growth stage companies quickly and successfully. She has participated in three initial public offerings, uh, including SourceFire, US Internetworking, and Unify, as well as multiple mergers and acquisitions. You can follow Michelle at mperry28. Welcome, Michelle, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, happy to be here. So we are really excited talking about health, health tech, healthcare, where it's going. You guys have actually looked at the world in a very different way, which is not traditional. It used to be all about the doctor, the physician, their records, the efficiency of the provider. And then something flipped, right? The consumerization of healthcare occurred. So let me ask you this. Patient centricity um, means so many things to so many people. What has to change in today's healthcare environment for this to happen? The patient has to be involved. So you have to make it easy for the patient. So we, we talk about the fact that you've got to have it easy for that patient and that they can do whatever they need to do quickly. We're so spoiled about everything else for retail, one click with Amazon, your financial records, things like that. But meanwhile, to get any information in the healthcare business, it's completely upside down. But, but how does the patient know more than the provider? How could that happen, right? You know, what, what could change in this equation, as I say, snarkily? <laughs> Well, so the patient's not necessarily going to know more than the doctor, but they're going to be able to access information about themselves and be able to communicate with their doctor there. So it's about moving that information to a new model, a new paradigm that's really centered on the patient and making it easy for the patient. If you make it easy for the patient, you can make it easy for the provider. And, you know, have you, have you tried to recently, you know, get a subscription updated or change an appointment or do any of that stuff with your provider? Most of the times it's been a pain in the neck. <laughs> I don't know how many hours you're on the phone waiting for that to happen. So Ray, Ray wrote a Harvard Business Post uh, that took us into the future of healthcare. And uh, it was really the impact and the, and the contextual intelligence that artificial intelligence will bring 
into personalizing service delivery and creating a frictionless environment. And it was a scenario of somebody visiting a family member at a hospital and how they checked in the lobby and went to the gift store and up the elevator. And it was a great, great um, uh, uh, article uh, that took us maybe hopefully in the near future. But when we talk about this um, uh, healthcare changing and uh, impact of consumer technology, you know, arguably starting with, 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 with smartphone a decade ago, what are some of the technologies that improve engagement and also reduce friction for patients? That's funny. It's, it doesn't have to be sexy technology. It can be something very basic like texting. Instead of all these, you know, highfalutin portals with everything in there, just again, go back to the phone. Have your phone, have email, have text, and reach the passenger. So it's right message to the right patient at the right time. And it, it, it does, you can use behind the scenes, you can use AI and bots and all this other stuff to make sure we're getting the right thing out there. But it's, everyone's got a phone in their hand all the time. Why, why aren't we using that a lot more as opposed to making people have applications uh, or apps on making them log on to portals and have different passwords? Um, I used the example a couple of weeks ago with my team here. Is I had an appointment. I knew it was on Monday. Over the weekend, I was like, what time was that on? I went to log on the portal. It wasn't even in the portal yet. The doctor said, oh, no, we have to move it into the portal. I'm like, hello, like how hard is that? Because they're all disjointed systems. So, and then the instructions for the medicine, of course, that I needed on Monday, those weren't in there either. So I'm like, okay, Sunday night, it's not really an emergency. But I do need to know what I need to do before this procedure. So instead, push it out to me, push it to the patient, make it easy for that patient to have what they need at the right, again, right, right information at the right time to the right patient. And that's what's being patient-centric. Absolutely. Oh, but I love logging into multiple portals and asking as for my name and patient ID number 17 times. And the fact that I have 10 patient ID numbers, even though I'm at the same hospital. So. Well, all the different practices, right? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. All the outpatient clinics tied back into like the provider, tied back into an insurance number. Can we have like 10 of your numbers? It's hell. <laughs> so, yeah. but, uh, I mean, unfortunately... Portals are not going away. They were, they were part of the whole meaningful use and were required. So they, they're going to sit out there. But we have people who are using our system to just even text to force people onto the portal. So like, hey, here's the quick message. Go get on the portal and get your, your lab results or whatever that's out there. But how are we making it? <laughs> what was that? Portals are coming back everywhere, not just in healthcare. It's really funny. I've, I've heard the word portal at least 13 times this week. So. Really? Yeah. It's strange. Yeah, I don't think they'll ever go away in healthcare. They're, yeah. they're not going to go away because they're required by the meaningful use and the funding that went around with that. But, you know, they'll evolve and other things will circle them and make them a lot more efficient. So, but the good news is, right, information is being thrown out at us, right? We're able to see more information about ourselves. We're able to get it much more in a timely manner. Um, is that improving the biggest problem in healthcare, which is preventative medicine, as opposed to being a reactive? Like, is that going to improve with automation or mobility or other areas? Where do you see that happening? Yeah, there's some really interesting things, how people are studying what, you know, the whole behavioral side of getting people engaged and taking the steps and reminding them about medications and reminding them um, about, you know, the next steps, the next appointments, coming in and getting A1C tests and different things like that. So I think they can, again, if you make it easy, people are so busy and have so much going on, but if you can make it easy, you can move a lot of these things ahead. 
Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about your company and what attracted you last year to join as the CEO uh, and, 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 you know, feedback you're hearing from your customers about the solutions you're providing? Yeah, right. So um, Relations focused is headquartered here in Nashville. And um, I joined the company last year. We'd been mostly bootstrapped up to that point, And we had some great traction. Um, and we sell to all size practices. We have groups that sell for like the one to 10 doctors, 10 to 50, and then 50 on up in the hospital system. And people were really focused on how do they communicate with their patients. And so, um, you know, at first it was like, oh, patient reminders appointment reminders what's the big deal i i joke my, my hairdresser has big you know reminders but <laughs> turns out it is harder because it's hipaa compliant in all the things about when you can message and what you can message and all of that so the fact that we integrate right into the back end electronic medical records and the patient um, practice management systems is what's really you know differentiates and helps because it, it doesn't help if you have to dump data into another system to make calls and texts and everything like that um, so we really get at this point have messaged over 40 million uh, patients last year we know what times to send the messages what's the best thing to send them how to send them in english versus spanish how to tell you to send them out early because you have to start fasting to send them out earlier to stop taking medications if you're going to have surgery all that kind of communication system so it was a great opportunity for me to come you know join this team and uh, lead them kind of you know through this next phase of growth so it's a very exciting time so, so, so very so precision contextually rich communication through a very seamless uh, forum uh, medium texting that's our goal our goal is to be invisible our goal is to be invisible and so that what we're doing is just facilitating you know, hospitals are making huge investments in systems like Epic. Other folks, you know, are making big investments in companies like Modernizing Medicine, which is really taking the market by storm in dermatology and other practice areas like that. So to be the front end of those kind of systems for patients as far as getting all those communications out there. So those are some places where we don't want to be yet another system as much as to really enhance the investments that folks have really made and make it patient-centric. Actually, are, the patients, are the patients driving your future roadmap? Are you getting feedback from patients in terms of this is what we need, the evolution of your you know, solutions? Yeah, so very much there. Patients, are, patients don't have any pa patients are very impatient <laughs> at sitting on hold to make an appointment or to get refills or doing all these different things. And at the same time, the providers don't want all those layers of administrative help that add costs to their business. So, you know, all the things that we've integrated in there, so it's not just appointment reminders, but if I cancel appointment, let me easily reschedule. So the online scheduling, the patient check-in, um, all that patient communication comes all up. All the friction. All the friction. You're getting rid of all the friction that, that you're taking away the whole patient area waiting experience. Come on. Why would you do that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you this, also focus in on the other piece. Done, Ray, in every other vertical, every other area has already improved the experience and healthcare is like the last one to do it. Well, you know, people like that kind of experience. I mean, you know, you get the doctor's music, the music, the whole chair. Where else would you find time to read the magazine you never get to read from four years ago? Come on, it's amazing. No, but <laughs> so hey, one of the toughest challenges related to that, right? You, you talk about the other parts of patient experience where it all comes together. I mean, we're actually holding a healthcare transformation summit 
uh, in a couple of weeks where Abala will be speaking in Las Vegas. We've got 12 to 15 of the top system CXOs and CDOs in place. Uh, and, and everybody comes down to the charge master, right? The bill was the hardest thing that patients get because the patients get it from all angles. Everyone's trying to get a cut of the patient um, and it's mm -hmm. a pain in the butt, right? And often it's not even written in English um, what can we do to improve this? And then I'll ask you a question about Epic later because I'm getting a lot of hate tweets right now from physicians. Can she fix Epic for us? Can she fix Epic for us? I don't want to pay a quarter million dollars for a button. But anyways, that's a whole other story. What about that's another one? <laughs> what about this bill thing? That'd be a whole other episode. What's this bill thing? Like, how can you make it easier for patients? Because that is really complicated, especially if you're doing some self-pay, especially if it's not fully all insured. Lots of different things come into play. Absolutely. So again, take it mobile and take it, make it easy. So again, pushing the bills specifically to your phone and letting you click here and pay. <laughs> so why hasn't that been done? So what if I can't, you come out of an appointment and it can basically, you know, send you your bill. So insurance has already paid, you still owe $16.23 for your visit to, you know, Dr. Smith. Pay now. So directly taking that off. Let you pay in the middle of the night. Let you pay whenever you want. Installment plans? Between eight to four. <laughs> can, I, can, can I do installment plans as well? Absolutely, payment plans are key. And so with more people having these big out-of-pocket things, payments, they wanna be able to pay over time. So they need a payment plan and then charge it monthly. Um, so, oops, I'm just getting internet connections unstable. <laughs> no, no problem. Can you hear me so, yeah. there okay? okay. Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. They want different payment plans. They want different options. They want even different types of interest rates. In some case, they might need a hardship reduction. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, all of that and being able to get it to the patient and set that up so it can automatically go over time. So again, let them pay from the web, let them pay on their phone, let them pay at the front desk. Um, again, if you've done this and got the card on file, again, like Amazon One Click, you can easily do this on an ongoing basis. So that's a key thing with the system there. So we like to say we kind of focus on doing the ABCs, administrative things, the billing things, the financial, and the C is the clinical, the ongoing population health populate things. So all those three things and making them easy again for the provider and for the patient. And, and, and Michelle, what, can you tie improving patient engagement to patient outcomes and compliance? Like why, why is patient engagement so important? How does it, how, can you see a correlation of improving, you said 40 million engagements, uh, you know, uh, with your system and can are you seeing that improved engagement results in better outcomes and, and, and better compliance? Yeah, and we start, again, not sexy part, just get you to your appointment. And so, you know, some people see, have over 20% no-shows. So what happens? Oh, wow. what, you, what happens? What do doctors do? They double book you, kind of like an airline. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. They double book because their no-shows are so high. So then you or I have taken off for work, go to the doctor, and we're sitting there. You know, waiting for our appointment because they've double booked. Wow. So some people have tried to do instead of that is they start to charge people. If you miss an appointment, well, guess what? The person who missed the appointment is probably the person who also is not going to pay you. So, so instead, get, get people help. So I said I don't want to say we stalk the patient to make sure they get to that appointment, but we kind of we really make sure we're hitting them. You know, multimodality of phone, email, and text, and driving them to that appointment. Okay. And so it 
can't get them to that appointment, you're not gonna get the right blood tests, you're not gonna get them all the other things to find out what they need to go forward. So that's the first thing, is if you don't get them into that appointment. So that's what it all starts, starts on. If they, and then if they have to cancel, push them right again to you know, self-schedule to a new time. And then follow-ups, all that communication that drives forward on this. Just make it easy, because you know, people don't wanna be sick, they, they wanna do the right thing, but it's just yeah. kind of hassle to go to the doctor. <laughs> No, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. We've all experienced it. So, uh. no, and and you know, I mean, in some cases, right? It's also if you walk in and you know that they have to do a blood test in the follow up, and they've got a window that's open. I mean, telling them if they come in on time, they have a chance to get the, all the other tests in order and in sequence at the same time. That gets them really incentivized because people mm -hmm. want to be able to do it all at once. And so, I've seen that actually help as an incentive as well for uh, for folks that are doing this. You can um, messaging messaging back, you know, group messaging back to your patients on any given day. The doctor got called in to deliver a baby, so your appointment's canceled. Yeah. Uh, we had a ton of uh, providers who were using things this year with health. I with weather, so they were with, between the hurricanes. Yeah, our office is open or it's closed or we didn't Snow have storms. All of those, but instead of blasting your entire base, you can blast just the folks who had appointments that day. Um, you might be able to be sending a message of people who come in for allergy shots to say, well, don't come in today, there isn't a doctor here, and you have to have, so those are someone who's not even getting an appointment, but you're in a group of patients that you need to communicate to. So don't over-message, which is some of the things that people tend to do. So all the things I learned in marketing automation apply you know, over the years, <laughs> is applying here in healthcare as well, about how many emails you send or don't send, and all of those things. Speaking about marketing automation, we have a comment here, and, and one of our uh, one of our colleagues, Cindy Zo, says hello and thank you. So oh, hi, Cindy. <laughs> so, uh, but apparently you uh, you guys had worked together at some point or worked with each other on some things. So, okay, well, hey, I'm going to ask you the last question here, and, and really, this is really about EMRs um, and really talking about um, patient centric systems and EMRs. Um, those are kind of like the, the the stodgy backbone of like you know what physicians have to deal with and how patients see on the other end um, how do you make the emr more sexy i mean for a patient yeah you don't let the patient touch it <laughs> i mean you set me up for that one there that i mean you don't let that system was written for providers versus the information in it get the right information out to the patient at the right time. So um, those are kind of the ERP system specifically, you know, that's the back end that the provider needs to run their business. But the front end, pull just the pieces to the patient. Don't try to bombard them and get them the right date at the right time. Hey, and I wanna get one last question. And David Cho, he's one of the top CIO influencers in healthcare, just asked a question for us. Any hospital systems using Relationed? Yeah, we do. Um, so Washington University uses uh, relation. In St. Louis? Uh, in St. Louis, yeah. Perfect, they were. right next to him. Well, not next to him, but on the other side of the state. He's in Kansas yeah. City, Jones Mercy. Um, so. Less a hospital system, but a whole community care. Um, the Access Healthcare out of Chicago with their 36 health centers and community health center. And doing communication on everything from, you know, food trucks are going to be here for the food insecure, um, as well as some things there. So we've rolled out a across there, Boulder Healthcare out in Boulder, obviously in Colorado there, um, and uh, excellent. the other one's there. Michelle, we have, your, we have a potential customer, uh, CIO, who wants to learn more, that's great. <laughs> yeah. 
That's terrific. That's terrific. Well, thank you so much. I, I learned a lot. I appreciate your thought leadership. We are here with Michelle Perry, CEO at Relationt uh, Twitter. You can follow her at mperry28, M-P-E-R-R-Y 28. Thank you for being on the show, and we've got to have you on back at some point. Thank you. This has been great. Thanks, thank friend. Bye-bye. Have a good weekend. Yeah, it's gonna, we're going to talk a lot about creating a frictionless environment in healthcare at our CIO or CXO event in a couple of weeks in Las Vegas. And all of these uh, you know, executives who are, who are attending the event want to improve the, improve the experience of all stakeholders, patients, administrators, uh, healthcare providers. And uh, it's our privilege uh, to uh, speak to Dr. David Lenahan, CEO of Tiber Health, as our next guest. Uh, Tiber Health was founded by a team of educators, medical professionals, and entrepreneurs. Their mission is to bring health science education to places that need it most, and we're gonna learn a lot about that. As an experienced educator and medical practitioner, David is passionate about improving access to medical education for students for all backgrounds, all income levels. And prior to launching Tiber Health and assuming the role of president of Ponce Health Science University, uh, Dr. Lenahan served as Dean of Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York. At Toro, uh, David fundamentally changed the way medical education was taught. And uh, I love, I saw on the, on, the, on, the, on the site, you said, I started Tiber Health when I realized as an educator, I was doing it all wrong. So we're going to learn about that as well. <laughs> I love the humility of these extraordinary guests that we bring on Strong TV. You can follow Dr. Lenahan on Twitter at uh, D-R-D-A-V-I-D-L-E-N-I-H-A-N. Dr. David Lenahan, welcome to the Shrub TV. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks for being on the show. And as we mentioned, uh, you know, we're doing the CXO. We're doing a healthcare transformation summit. It's being led uh, by David Cho. Uh, it's actually well, who's following here as well. And, and at least 15 other major health systems will be there looking at this. And, you know, when we look at what's happening in healthcare systems, I was just at Johns Hopkins yesterday uh, talking to the team and the tech ventures over there. Um, look, the physician shortage is a huge issue, right? I mean, before it was like, oh, we got too many physicians. We don't have to worry about right. it, right? We'd put all those osteopathic schools out. We'd put all these different like four medical grads, got the FMGs coming in. But, but now we got a physician shortage. How do we go from like too many physicians to physician shortage? What are the root causes? Can't we just go build out more medical schools? <laughs> you would think that it would be easy to do. We've always had a physician shortage. So even though we kind of said we didn't, we've always had it. In fact, the World Health Organization says we're about 13 million healthcare workers short across the globe. So we, we tend to talk about in the US, but this is a global problem. And really the reason why there's a shortage and we don't build more medical schools is because the cost of building these things have gone out of control. The new medical school down in Texas, $500 million to build, it's great that America can afford $500 million to build a new medical school, but you can't build that in Ethiopia. You can't build that in Zambia. They just don't have the resources. So we have to fundamentally change the way we go about providing education to our future doctors so that they can afford to get the education and still maintain that high quality. I saw a stat, I don't know if it was on your website, by 2025 US, US could find itself somewhere between 15,000 to 36,000 primary care physicians. And also the yeah. staffing shortfalls for certain specialists could be between 37,000 to 60,000 physicians over the next seven years. 
What's the root cause? Right. Is, it, is it really the expense of establishing? And are there, you know, can't, and as, as Ray said, are there, are there, how are you addressing this issue? So it, it's two points to that. One, it's the cost of medical education. Mm-hmm. If I, I remember back when I was a student, it took me 20 years to pay off my student loans. Some of these students are, are, are graduating with three, $400,000 in debt. Mm-hmm. And when you have that much debt, you tend to go into specialties or in practice that's going to allow you to pay for it. The problem is when we talk about that shortage, it's not that we have the shortage in Long Island in New York. The problem is we have the shortage in Harlem. We have the shortage in East St. Louis. We have the shortage in Detroit. We have shortage in areas that really have a need for these docs. And so we have to learn how to reduce the cost, but get our doctors willing to go into those areas of need. And that's the problem. And I I like to say this. It's great, you guys, we were talking about Elon Musk a a little bit ago. It's great he wants to send somebody to Mars. I mean, I think that's just fabulous. But the real problem of today, I mean, the problem that affects everybody that's watching this show and all their cousins and nephews and friends is quality of health care. That affects people's lives right now, this instant. And if we don't find a way to change this, and I think we are finding a way, but if we don't find a way to do it right now, there's a massive problem on the horizon that we need to address. No, I, I agree with you. I always tell my wife, like she wanted to you know, stay at home, be a stay at home mom. And I said, look, you know, if I don't go to work, who cares, right? The world's not going to change. Like she doesn't go to work. She's a physician, right? People die, right? It's, it's, it's huge. Right. And, uh, it, it's one of those things. Now, when you started Tiber, it, it, you actually had a very, very interesting thesis, right? One, medical schools don't really know who's going to succeed. Now, I'm a byproduct of that. I was a six-year med school kind of guy. So I was in a six-year med yeah. program. My brother was in a seven-year med program at Michigan. My, you know, my sister-in-law is a physician. My wife's a physician, right? So I knew they were going to be okay. But medical schools really don't know who will succeed, people like me. And resources are spent on, <laughs> resources are spent on didactic versus experiential learning. Is this still the problem? Right. Oh, it's still the problem. And we've been talking about this mm. for 100 years. I mean, this isn't something that is, oh, wow, we got a problem. This is a problem we knew about. There's a, there's a study called the Flexner Report in the 19, early 1900s that talked about it. But really, there's been kind of three periods in the history of medical education. There was this period of Hippocrates, where if you wanted to be a doctor, you went to some island and learned about prognosis and what happened to patients if they had a set of symptoms. About a thousand years later, comes around named Galen. Most people don't know about him, but it was around zero BC. And he did all this research and all this work. The problem was that all of his research and work was wrong. He did it on animals and not humans. But from zero to about 1600, medicine was a dead topic. Come 1600, a guy named Versalius comes around, realizes all the work Galen was doing was wrong, sat in front of a class and read the work Galen did and had students take notes and take exams. That's what we do today. Teacher stands up in front of the classroom, students take some notes, they go back and take a test. The person who can standardize, or the group that can standardize medical education right now, that can standardize it across the globe, so all of us are learning the same thing. And the great thing about medicine, we all are the same. We have four chambers in our hearts. We have two lungs. You know, we got 10 fingers. Because of that commonality, if we can standardize that health education globally, that's the people they're going to write about in the next thousand years. And really, that's what drives me being able to make sure that we ensure that everybody on the globe and all the communities have the quality health insurance and the quality health care that my family has come to expect 
And I'll add a little bit how this came about. And getting students to go to medical school class sometimes is hard. They're A personalities, you know. I, I, I always had trouble going to 8 a.m. biochemistry class. It was just, you know, it's tough to do, taking notes. But I used to get a lot of students that would come to my class. I teach the brain and, and neuroanatomy. And the students would be there, and for two hours, I remember this very clearly. It was one lecture, it was just starting winter. And for two hours, I was lecturing about the brain and the blood supplies and all this stuff. And at the end of the class, I said, all right, here's a patient. Here's a set of symptoms. The patient had a stroke. Which vessel got damaged, the front, middle, or back? And they had the little student response systems. And I pretty much got 25% for middle, front, back, and I made up a fourth answer. Kind of they were all over the place, which means the students had no bloody idea what the problem was. And, and you know, I get Teacher of the Year awards and I'm, you know, all this stuff, but I didn't, I did, they didn't get it. And I got pissed. I mean, as a teacher, you get mad. I'm like, dude, you guys are all going to see this patient. You got to know what the answer is. So I said, you got five, uh, five minutes, solve it, 5% of your final grade. Stu medical students love points. And so they went and looked it up, you know, they're on the computers. It took them about two seconds to solve it because most strokes happen in the middle. They all answered it correctly. I left the class and I thought, all right, there's two possible solutions here. One, all these students, 150 students, are just too stupid to understand a Cambridge and educate, uh, Cambridge and Edinburgh educated doctor like me. Maybe all the kids are too dumb. Or two, and this is really the tough thing, what if I suck? What if I'm not, I mean, I'm entertaining and I'm fun. But what if I'm not connecting with the student? Wow. And that's when it kind of flipped. And I thought, all right. So I, at that time, I took a tape recorder and I recorded all my lectures and I had the students listen to them and we started working through clinical cases. And that was the genesis of how this whole system evolved. And I didn't know at the time there was like a $5 billion industry out there. I was doing this. I was coding the stuff myself and solving the things. I didn't realize there was a big industry out there. I was just trying to really solve a problem of how to improve our education in our school and it, it worked really well so we're really excited about it that, that, that's so, so that was the impetus for you starting the company uh, when you realized that you you needed to find a different way to connect and really educate your students yeah and, and what a way to standardize it so that we could start getting data so every time the students were in the class they were answering questions and yeah. we started getting all types of data and then we were able to use that data to start building large-scale predictive models using machine language so that we could predict board performance. And by predicting board performance, we're able to say, hey, here's a specialty you maybe should go into, or here's an area that you're having trouble with and we need to alter your study habit. And the thing that was really quite interesting is students travel in very tight bands. And when they started deviating from their bands, as the dean, I was able to step in and say, Say, hey, Ray, what's going on? You're normally an A student. Now you're getting a B. What's going on? Nine times out of 10, the student says, the last test was too hard. I had to let off some steam. So, you know, I'll be back. Fine. But it's the one time out of 10 where the student says, and these are real things that I had to deal with. I'm being abused by my husband. My son has cancer. Mom's sick. If I know about it ahead of time, I can step in and solve the problem. Yeah. And because of that, we were able to help reduce the cost of tuition because we had less dropout rate. We were able to get the students to be able to graduate so they were more willing to go into areas of community. And the other thing is because we had all this data and analytics, we were able to change our admission standards so that we were able to get more black and Hispanic students into the medical curriculum because we had a different risk profile than the other medical students. You get thousands and thousands of medical students applying for a small number of slots. 
And so if you can change that risk element by using the data analytics just a little bit, you get more underrepresented minorities into the healthcare. And they're the ones that are likely to go into Harlem, into East St. Louis, and those communities we talked about in the beginning, the ones that are in need for that healthcare. And what the idea is, as we start expanding this globally, is that we have students in Somalia. And we can be able to predict using the data how those students are going to do. Then we can contact the Minneapolis-St. Paul health system and say, hey, you have 150,000 Somali refugees in your community. We have four doctors that are going to be in primary care, surgery, and ER. We take them from those communities and move them to where they're culturally needed. And that will improve the reimbursement rates for the hospital because 5% of that patient payment is based on patient satisfaction. And here's why this is important. I'm going to give a very personal example. I had a heart surgery six months ago. I had a heart attack and I had to have surgery. The doctor walks into the room and when he tells me that, Dave, you got a problem, here's what happened, it's my wife and me. I'm sitting on the table and he's telling us. If a patient has the exact same physiology in Puerto Rico and I walk into that room, there's 30 people in the room. Grandma, grandpa, uncle, nephew, cousins, next door neighbors. Now, medically, how you handle that patient's the same, but culturally, how you handle it is significantly different. I'm an Irish Catholic boy from the Midwest. I'm from St. Louis. You don't touch me unless you absolutely have to. But down in Puerto Rico, you know, you got to hug the patient. You have to be willing to touch, you know, the grandma's arm and say it's going to be okay. Those little things can mean billions and billions of dollars to the U.S. health system. And now we're starting to recognize that. So what we want to do is by standardizing the education, understanding that this cultural aspect's important, we can now start placing physicians that have those skill sets into health systems where they actually need it. And wow. that's kind of the overall model. That's wow. What incredible insights. Yeah, that's amazing. Also, we'll get you a toasted ravioli and uh, warm you up a little before we touch you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <St. Louis is laughs> toasted ravioli, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, hey, so, so we're, we're talking about the shift, right? What about the rural, rural side, right, where we're trying to match patients to rural areas? I think I, I feel like I, re I read an article that you were tied back to way, way back about health healthcare deserts. Um, and where different yeah. areas were missing, um, you know, access to care, kind of like when we talk about food deserts today. Um, tell me more about right. how that improves based on that statistical model that who's more likely to go to those rural areas. You know what? So it, it's just not healthcare deserts in rural areas. I want to kind of say that. Oh, yeah. In and that, in urban area. In a, I, was, I was trying to cover the in rural a, aspect, but you're right. Yeah, it's, it's okay. even it could be in, a, in an urban environment that there's a healthcare desert. And, and, and so what, what happens is, and let me just start with the urban, like in Harlem. You got NYU and Columbia, they're four miles away. But if you don't have a car and you don't have money, it might as well be in Vermont. And so the deserts exist all over the place. And what we find is that we need to be able to get patients, or excuse me, we need to be able to get students who are going to become doctors from those areas. It's not necessarily always about race. It's about socioeconomic aspects too. And so what you want to be able to do is be able to identify students where they're from get them through the school because they're the ones that are likely to go back to these communities and practice. And this is a, a huge problem across the Midwest of the United States. I think in New York and Florida and California, we got quite a few doctors. But if you go from West Virginia to Colorado, one problem is 95% of all the doctors look like me. And two, 
there is a shortage of doctors in all these rural areas where there's large Hispanic populations from, from migrant workers. So what we need to do is reduce the cost so these students are willing to go practice in those areas. We need to be able to change our entrance metrics so that we can identify students and change the risk profile so that we can get them into medical school, show that they're competitive, that they can make it, and then give them a pathway back into those communities. And I'll tell you, this is probably one of the most important things that exists globally for how we can help make our world a better place. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about University Ventures? What is it, what are the goals, missions, and uh, why it's important to you? So my co-founder, Daniel Panko, is firmly committed. And one of the great things I, I've really liked about UV is whenever we talk about quality, they're fully in. They recognize with healthcare and education and in healthcare that quality is the most important thing. People's lives are on, on, on the line. Yeah. And what they've recognized is that if you do the quality and you concentrate on these areas that need help, that you can actually make a return and do a social good. And that's what I'm really proud to be associated with Daniel and Ryan and, the, and Greg and the guys from UV because they recognize that, hey, we're going to do good. We'll make money, but we're going to do good. And this is something that's going to help the planet 100 years from now. That's terrific. That's terrific. No, that's more. It's wonderful to be on the, have that kind of backing. You guys are also set up as a public benefit corporation, one of the early PBCs, yeah. B Corps. Uh, tell us more about that and, and why did you decide to go that route? Does it help with funding? Does it help with grants? Uh, is it easier to attract investors? Well, it allows us to get investors. Being a nonprofit, it's tough to get investors in. What I really like about it is it gives me some fiduciary protection. As the president and CEO, I can tell the board and I can say, hey, guys, we could have made $5 million, but we're only going to make three because we're going to take $2 million and invest it back in the community and patient care and student services and things like that. So it really does help the CEO and, and the executive team focus in on what needs to be done because a lot of times when you're dealing with healthcare, it's a long-term play. It's not something you can fix tomorrow. You gotta be willing to say, all right, this is gonna be 10 years. And that public benefit corporation allows us to be able to say, all right, we're not gonna take the early gain. We're gonna take the long-term approach. And so I, I have found the B Corp to be just a fantastic mix between the two. Highly, highly recommended. This is awesome. We are here live with David Lanahan, CEO at Tiber Health. Uh, you can follow him at Dr. D-A-V-I-D. L-E-N-I-H-A-N, learn more about this innovative and disruptive model for training physicians and improving healthcare around the world. Thanks a lot for being on the show today. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Really Thank, you. Thank you very much. Uh, you, you see what I mean, Ray? Friday afternoons, you know, it's, I'm going to be re-watching this conversation and just gleaning all the insights that was shared in the last 20 minutes. I know you can catch us on SoundCloud, you can catch us on iTunes, and pretty soon we'll find some video podcast as well. But uh, definitely, if you're uh, catching up on on the week, but but now we're actually we gotta we gotta sit on this green couch. It looks really good. Yeah. <laughs> Who do we have here right now? This is our cleanup hitter spot, where usually we have an extraordinary guest come and hit a grand slam with with their wisdom. So. <laughs> We're, well, we're honored to have uh, uh, Byron Reese come back to Disrupt TV. Uh, uh, Byron is author and publisher at GigaOM. 
there are people who hope the future will be better, and then there are people who reason the future will be better. Byron is the second variety. Uh, both a futurist and optimist, Byron believes we're approaching a fourth age, and we're going to talk about that through the, the next 20 minutes, for humanity that promises to be infinitely better than anyone has ever seen before. Uh, Byron's new book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robotics, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, was released last month. In his book, uh, he invites us to take what he called a brisk walk through 100,000 uh, years of human history, discussing big questions along the way. In fact, our previous guest gave us uh, insight in terms of uh, education and health, which I think was a great, great segue. He's also the author of award-winning Infinite Progress, How Technology and the Internet Will End Ignorance, Disease, Hunger, Poverty, and War. Uh, Byron is also CEO of Publisher and Gigolome, one of the world's leading technology research companies. And uh, his work has been featured in numerous, hundreds of news outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, USA Today, and much more. An excellent follow on Twitter at B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E. Welcome back, Myron, to Disrupting News. Hey, thanks for having me. I always love being here. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I was reading the book. I realized, I hadn't realized fire, farming, wheels, and writing, right, were like the first three ages. And now we're about to enter this fourth age. Let's talk about that and talk about if there is a role for humanity. Yeah, so the thesis of the book, um, well, there are two things. One is uh, it looks back across history and it says that three times in the past, we've invented a new technology that has changed us, like really changed humanity's trajectory and sent us off in a new direction. And one of those was when we got fire, and fire let us cook our food. Cooking our food mean, meant we, had, we could eat more calories. We used those calories to grow our brains. Our brains got big, and we got language, and that changed everything. And then the second time we got agriculture, which gave us the city, and the city gave us the division of labor, and now all of a sudden you could have wealth. And the third time we got, we got writing, which allowed you to outsource your memory, and uh, we got the wheel, and those two technologies together gave us the nation state because you could promulgate laws and collect taxes. And so I, the, the, the thesis of the book at the beginning was that artificial intelligence and robots are the same kind of thing. They are a case where uh, a technology, where just like fire kind of let you pre-digest food and writing lets you outsource your memory. Artificial intelligence, you know, lets you outsource what your brain does and robots let you outsource what your body does. And then that's going to bring up the question of, well, then what? If you outsource your brain and your body, what then are, are people? But the second thing that I was really intrigued by is how come is it that so many smart people have such different opinions hmm. about these technologies? Why does Elon Musk, was he afraid that AI is going to kill us all and Bill Gates is in that camp? And then you get people like Andrew Ng, says that's like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. You get people who say automation is going to take all the jobs. We're going to have massive unemployment. And then you have people who say, no, we're going to have this huge shortage of humans. And, and, and I was really interested in not just like being another voice in that. I really wanted to ask, why do they have such different opinions? And the conclusion I came to was not that they know different things in each other, but that they believe different things. And so the book, the book asks the reader three questions, three non-technical questions that everybody can kind of answer. And then it works through the implications of your answers. So that with those three questions, you can kind of figure out, are the robots going to take all the jobs? Is artificial intelligence going to take over? 
Uh, will computers ever become conscious and all of the rest? So, so you had the Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates camp, and you had the Mark Zuckerberg and Andrew Inc., as you mentioned, camp. Extraordinary, <laughs> accomplished uh, individuals. And, and, and you said three questions led to your thesis aligned with the Zuckerberg camp in that it's gonna be a, a more optimistic view? No, I never say in the book what, uh, what I think. Okay. Uh, because it's irrelevant. The, 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 the important, I didn't wanna just be another guy with an opinion trying to convince you I'm right. Sure. Uh, the question is the answers of the reader. So like the first question, the first question is what are you? Now I'm gonna give you three choices. You are a machine. Everything that happens in you is just bio, biochemical and electrical and, and everything's deterministic and you are nothing but a machine. I mean, nothing but, you're an amazing machine, but you're a machine. The second choice is that you are an animal. And an animal, you, you may say, well, my body's mechanistic, but I have this thing called life and life may not be mechanistic. Hmm. And then your third choice is you are a human being. And of course we're humans, but this says, yes, your body's mechanistic. Yes, you have life but you have something else that's unique to people. Maybe, maybe you're, you have consciousness. Maybe you have a soul. Whatever it is, there's something different. And so for that question alone, you can say, generally speaking, people who believe we're going to create artificial general intelligence and it's gonna take over the world and, 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 and we're gonna have robots, you, all of that is, are people who believe they are machines. Because if you are a machine, then it stands for reason you can build a mechanical version, a mechanical machine, and then it stands to reason you can make that better and better and better and better and better. On the other hand, if you say, no, I'm not a machine, I'm something else, then we may not be able to duplicate what you are mechanistically. And so that's what the book tries to figure out. And like I said, it doesn't matter what I think I am. That's yeah. absolutely irrelevant to the book. What matters is kind of that thought process. So that what, what happens is when you hear somebody say, uh, AI is going to kill us all. We're doomed. We're doomed. You can say, aha, I know why they think that. They think that because they believe they are a machine. You know, Ray and I interviewed uh, and talked to Peter Schwartz, uh, who's a futurist at Salesforce. I believe he's the oldest employee at Salesforce, um, and, and he's the futurist. Uh, but he has spent decades thinking about the future. And he'll say, I replaced both hips. I've replaced my eye. My tennis game has never been better. So I wonder if you would answer your question A and C, uh, and a hybrid of both. Um, and then when you watch 60 Minutes last week, when the MIT student is surfing the net with his mind, and the vibrations in his inner ear are providing answers to him, so the new UI is his mind. It's not voice or text or anything else we've been uh, using. I, I, you know, this, it's, it's fascinating how there maybe could be a combinatorial effect of all of this, but, but it's, um, it's, it's uh, talking to Peter, I feel like he's half machine, half human. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, when you think about that, so, so the traditional paradigms of man versus machine, or do the robots take over? I mean, do you think we're just entering an age of augmented humanity for now? Or because I do want your opinion. I, I, I do want to know. Where I, know I don't make any efforts to hide what I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I host an hour long podcast about AI. I'm very open with my opinion. Yeah. The point of the book, though, was not to, to explore, not for me to just say, here's the exactly. answer. The, exactly. the, the point of the book was, it was a thought experiment about it. Right. Um, here's, what I, here's what I think. Um, we have this brain that uh, we don't understand. 
And people sometimes think we don't understand it because we have 100 billion neurons, and this is not the case. There's a worm called the nematode worm. They're the most common animal on the planet by far. Uh, and their brain has 302 neurons. And for 20 years, people have tried to model that in a computer. It's called the Open Worm Project. And they're trying to, to replicate that worm in the computer. They can't do it. No. Nobody, nobody can do it. Because we don't know how a neuron works. A neuron may be as complicated as a supercomputer. We don't really know. Then you have a mind. And a mind is everything that, um, I like that it, it went out of focus right then. It was like, we entered the twilight zone briefly. You have a mind, and the mind is everything your brain does that it doesn't seem like three pounds of goo should be able to do. For instance, you have a sense of humor, but unlikely your liver does not have a sense of humor, right? So what, where does all that other stuff come about? Like, how can it? And we don't understand the mind, and that's fine. And then we have consciousness. And consciousness, people say we don't know what it is, and that's not true. Uh, we know exactly what it is. It is your experience of the world. It's feeling warmth as opposed to measuring temperature. It's the taste of a pineapple. Uh, we, what we don't know is how does it come about? And it may be necessary for general intelligence. Um, so I look at it and say, we have minds we don't, brains we don't understand, minds we don't understand, and consciousness we don't understand. And therefore, I'm unconvinced we can build that mechanically. That isn't to say I don't believe it's possible. I just have never seen any, any proof for it. That I have no reason at all to believe that, actually. Um, but, but again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we, if we did. It just, you know, you, it's hard to say, yes, we don't understand any of that, but man, we are going to build one. In 2041, we will have it. What was the biggest learning with your one-hour podcast on AI? Have you changed your point of view on something based on deeper dialogue and, and, and conversations with... Well, you know, one thing that became really clear to me... Uh, so we, there is no consensus definition on what artificial intelligence is. And the reason is, is there's no consensus definition on what intelligence is. And there's no consensus definition on what life is or death or will or creativity. I mean, all of these concepts that we use so much, they began to break down because we, we created them all with us in mind. And so they're ill-equipped to have conversations about can a computer be creative? Like, what does that mean? We don't have a vocabulary for it. And so we use these very imperfect words to have these conversations. And, and therefore, there's not a lot of understanding. And so I think the process of doing that podcast uh, has been that um, I'm very cautious with the words that I use and how I use them. Because, you know, when AlphaGo, two years ago, when AlphaGo beat Lisa Dole and Go, it made this move that no human would have made. They, they say one in 10,000 chance a human would have made it. And, and at that moment, they began talking about AlphaGo's creativity. And so the question is, you know, was AlphaGo creative or did AlphaGo just imitate creativity or is there no difference between those two ideas at all? And so I'm, 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 I'm quite prepared to grant that our language inherently like limits our ability to understand these questions because we're using words that were never designed to be applied to machines. Can a machine think? That was what, uh, um, yeah. during, uh, you know, can, can a machine think? You know, the fascinating thing about that test, by the way, is, you know, if you're familiar with it, it is, uh, if you can't tell that you're chatting with a person or a computer, then you have to say the computer can think. What he said uh, in, in the paper was, if you pick the computer just 30% of the time, you have to say the computer's thinking, uh, not 50. 
Um, and here's the interesting thing. If you ever pick the computer 51% of the time, then you have to conclude the computer's better at being human than we are. <laughs> I didn't know that. Damn chatbots. Damn chatbots. They're alive. <laughs> I didn't know well, I think he wasn't trying to say, can it think as good as a human? Just can it think? And if it gets hardly any at all, you got to say, well, maybe it can. But, but can a machine think? Do you know the, um, you know the Chinese room problem? No. Let me throw no. this one at you. It is, uh, there's, this, there's this room, there's a man, a librarian, who speaks no Chinese, absolutely none. And he is in this gigantic room full of these very special books. Ah, John Searle. Exactly. Very good. And people slide questions underneath the door written in Chinese. He picks <laughs> those questions up. And he looks at the first character, which he doesn't understand. And he goes and finds a book with that on the spine. And he pulls that book down. And he looks up the second character. And that sends him to another book, another book, another book, another book, another book, until he gets to the end. And he writes down. Uh, the book says, write this down. So he copies these, these lines, slides the answer back out. And boom, the Chinese speaker picks it up. And it's brilliant. It's perfect Chinese. It rhymes. It's wise. Now, the question is, does the librarian understand Chinese? Now. We know that's all a computer can do right now, right? It runs a program and it spits out an answer and it, it doesn't know if it's talking about color or coffee beans, right? And so you have to say, can a computer understand anything? And to many people, the fact that you can care, and, and by the way, that room passes the Turing test. So to many people, you would say, look, it's having a conversation. You're having a conversation with the librarian in Chinese. You can't say the librarian doesn't understand it. But a lot of people look at it and say, of course not doesn't understand it. Like where you come down on that, does the librarian understand Chinese, is very much, I think, where you, you might come down on, can we build a machine? I mean, how could, how could an artificial general intelligence exist that doesn't understand anything? No, it's true. And if I remember correctly, in that argument, the last set is like a many mansions reply or he's neither right nor true because of strong AI and weak AI or something like that. I don't know if you remember. I, I, you probably obviously remember what, what happens from there. Can you explain well, that? Because it's very interesting to, to so, get that conclusion. So. I mean, Searle uses it to, to say a, a general intelligence isn't possible. And, 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 and to be clear, let's, let's split the two concepts apart like you just did. General AI and narrow AI Right. Are unrelated. I believe they are unrelated technologies. They're two different technologies. Correct. And, and, I, I, and, and I ask people on my show, do you think that narrow AI is an evolution towards general? And a lot of people, a lot of AI people don't think it is. Like, now we're going to have to do something completely different uh, but to get out of the Chinese room that all it does is runs this, this deterministic loop. Narrow AI is not what people who are afraid of general AGI, um, artificial intelligence. Oh, no one's afraid of narrow AI. Right. Nobody thinks your spam filter is plotting against you or anything like that. <laughs> We're worried about, they're worried about a technology that we don't, I don't believe we know how to build. Um, and the estimates on when we'll get it range between five and 500 years. Um, that being said, the vast majority of people on my show, and these are, these are, these are top AI people, the vast, vast majority believe we can build it. Like they have no problems. Uh, they have a deterministic mechanistic view of human intelligence and they believe we can build it. I can only think of four people on the whole show of 70 guests that don't think we can. Really? Um, really? Wow. Esther I want to talk to those four people because Esther Dyson was <laughs> one. Um, oh, Esther. Yeah. Um, 
but but you know so so to be clear most people in the AI world believe we can build it they believe and then that's what everybody's worried about a technology we don't yet know how to build in Europe you know there's the human brain project where they they put a bunch of money in trying to model a computer brain after a human brain uh, and then there are other approaches entirely um, Pedro Dominguez wrote a book called the master algorithm which is looking for a single algorithm that you can just kind of point at the internet and it'll just figure everything out. I will point out that in the second Avengers movie, when they plugged Ultron into the internet, 15 seconds later, he decided to kill us all. So I think that's really kind of uh, the worry. <laughs> do, do, you, do you study the startup landscape? Uh, I, I suspect you do in terms of AI. I often go to Venture Scanner and we're up to 2150 startups in 13 categories that have fetched 33 billion in funding. Uh, is it because there's optimism in that ecosystem that we're going to truly get to something magical in the near term? Well, I will say I will say two things to that. One, because there is no definition on what AI is, you can't say anything isn't AI. I mean, the, the lowest bar definition are things that respond to their environment. And if that's the case, then the cat food dish that refills itself when it's out of cat food is AI, right? I mean, it really is. That isn't fancy wordplay. Uh, all the way up to, to learning systems would be. So anybody who, you know, their, their market cap's a little low, uh, they're not getting enough interest, you can just say, yeah, we're an AI company. And, uh, and, and nobody can say you aren't. That being said, um, I'm a huge believer that every business on the planet can be, look, I, let, let me say it this way. 25 years ago in March, 20, 25 years and two months ago, uh, the Mosaic browser was released. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and if you had said, hey, in 25 years, we're going to have 2 billion machines all connected to this, uh, what do you think is going to happen? You might say, well, if you're really, really good, you'd say, well, I think the stockbrokers are going to have trouble and the travel agents and the yellow pages and the newspapers. And you would have been right about everything. But what you would have not seen, of course, is Google and Amazon, Uber, Airbnb, Etsy, eBay, Baidu, $25 trillion worth of wealth, a million new businesses, so many fundamental things whose cost dropped to zero, the cost of communicating to your users and all that. That, that was just connecting computers together with the common protocol. That was it. When all of a sudden you have a technology that makes everybody smarter, everybody can have the benefit of everybody else's experience. There's no telling how much economic impact that's going to have. I mean, if, if, if there was not a single advance in AI now, we just said, that's it, we're done, stop it. We've got 25 years worth of work to do, just implementing what we know how to do now. Uh, so I am a huge, huge believer in the technology um, and its ability. But you know, we're not, uh, should also be, be aware of its limits, right? All, all it is, is in, 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 in the end, is it says, let's study the past, let's study data from the past, and let's assume the future is like the past, and let's project into the future. On the one hand, that's a really simple idea. On the other hand, um, it does have limits. And, and there are things that you can look at and say, well, maybe we can't use that approach. You couldn't necessarily read in all the, every word that's ever been written and have something that could converse with you and I. It, it may not, there may, there may be rigid barriers on things that it cannot do, but the number of things that it can is so overwhelming. Yeah. I believe it will, um, you know, bring about a fourth age, uh, an, an incredible amount of prosperity for everyone. And I mean, even, even the bottom billion will benefit from this technology. The whole world will. Can you, can you show us the book again, please? Uh, audience? Show us the, show us the book.
Yeah, let's definitely look at the book. We're looking for fourth age. We are here with Byron Reese, publisher at GigaOM. And you can tweet him at Byron Reese. Um, he was last on our show, episode 46 in January 2017. And more importantly, you can catch him every week in the about in the AI about voices in AI podcast. This voices in AI, um, this is one of the big projects you've been working on. And uh, almost everybody I know in the world of AI has been on. So uh Definitely. But can we please listen. not wait another year before you come back? You, you were, you were terrific. <laughs> oh, thank you. you. Really I, terrific. I'll be here anytime you like. I love talking to you guys, and um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank maybe we'll get you to our conference too if you want to hang out there and, and yeah, chat. We'll you, catch you up on that. My mind, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely add to the uh, intellect level there. So absolutely, in a big way. Thank you so much. You were, you were, thank you guys. You were terrific. Wow, wow, wow. We are in May. We are in May. We're fully in May and we only got two episodes in May. Uh, our next episode is coming up, 106. Who do we have for episode 106, Vala? Ray, we have uh, Phil Dunkelberger, President and CEO of Knock Knock Labs. Ooh, Knock Knock, excellent. Uh, Steina Eichersmart, CEO and founder of Ubico, and Christopher Crummy, executive Director, IBM Security, X-Force Evangelist, and Outreach. So another three super smart people that are going <laughs> to teach Ray and I next, uh, next, next Friday. Closing remarks after two extraordinary CEOs that are putting a ding in the healthcare universe. And of course, Byron, who's uh, just uh, really trying to help all of us learn and appreciate where we are today in terms of the era of intelligence. Oh no, this was great. I mean, this is a great preview into the uh, Healthcare Transformation Summit we're doing with David Cho uh, out in Las Vegas, definitely seeing where the future is headed. Healthcare is such a very important part of our lives, but you know, when you put in the big picture of what Byron's talking about, right? I mean, this is gonna impact every industry where AI comes in and, and healthcare is gonna be one of those that's gonna be a beneficiary of that. So definitely something to watch, definitely something to re-listen. I think um, I've got to listen to this show a couple more times because I'm sure I missed something along the way. So Absolutely. what about you, Ma? What else? Absolutely. Well, you and I are going to talk to a group of federal CIOs also about future of work in June. And, and uh, so, we, we, you know, we have the privilege of collaborating with some of the best and brightest senior executives that are across many industries. And they're trying to grapple with this fourth industrial revolution and 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 digital transformation projects that, that they, they're championing. And uh, it's an opportunity for us, to, to you and I, for, to learn, connect, and hopefully contribute to some of our experiences. So it's, it's, uh, it's great. It's, it's, this is a great time to be in technology and business. No question. Oh, it is. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Catch us every 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And uh, you know, we'll be off the show for the last two weeks uh, for next week and uh, back on again and then back off again for the Memorial Day holiday. So see you guys all. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you.